Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Today, we're going to be talking about what has been dubbed Striketober by some in the media. Um, And a large part of the reason why it's been called this is because of the looming possibility for much of the month that AATSA, the International Association of Theater and Stage Employees, would be going on strike with, you know, tens of thousands of people who work on movies and TV shows, possibly walking off the job and throwing all of Hollywood into chaos as a result. Um, Had this happened, this would have obviously been a big deal. This would have been one of the largest strikes in the country in quite some time. Uh, I I think the actual number was like in the last decade, there hasn't been a strike larger than what IATSA had voted to authorize if the case had been. Um, But on Saturday, the 15th, IATSA and the Hollywood, uh, you know, companies uh, reached a deal that will avert a strike for now, though not everybody is happy with this deal. And there is still possibility that it could fall through. But the strike has been called off for now. It had been set a deadline for last Monday, the 18th. I guess the first question is, why were all these people willing to strike what what was so bad about working on movies and tv shows that you know these white collar workers just had to i mean arguably they're the least white collar workers of the movie industry they're the actual grunts who make it happen they're not in an office writing uh the screenplays they're not sitting around having lunches deciding what movies to make next and why in the world would you name something needle in a time stack by the way <laughs> i'm never gonna get over that uh that one came out on october 15th too by the way exactly <laughs> what an important day in film history yeah uh so so these are the people who are actually making it they're the electricians they're the the props guys they're the uh makeup artists and hairstylists and and costume designers and they're they're all the people who make it happen and without them there is no film it to a much larger degree than if uh the writers guild went on strike or the directors guild went on strike or or any of the actors who are uh in many cases producing shows which we can come back to in a bit um all of these people they're they're the actual labor behind the film and as a, and we know what happens when you slow the constant just onslaught of content even for a little we we've seen the kind of anger and uh, anxiety and all those other emotions that happen if if people don't get their latest movie fix so the fact that the people who actually make it work the people who operate the cameras, the people who operate the lights, the people who handle everything that goes on a set. I mean, they are 
whether it's whether it's theater, film, TV show, these are the people that they really control the production to a much greater degree than any of the quote unquote talent. And the idea that they could bring Hollywood to a halt, I think, you know, they, they had a unique kind of power there. That certainly spooked the producers. Uh, there was like a real danger of letting the strike actually happen and like instantly seeing all these projects go up in smoke, all these delays, something that's sort of tangential to the issues, but like, is that fandom has become increasingly um, not good in culture lately. I don't know if you've noticed, like people take their love of whatever cultural product they're consuming, whether it be Marvel movies or video games and tend to go overboard with things. I I know that, you know, in the video game industry, whenever there's an announcement of a game being delayed because they need more time to actually do the labor that makes video games happen, you know, the tweet announcing that can expect to be, you know, just brigaded by all sorts of people tweeting the most vile things imaginable about the fact that they have to wait another two days for whatever. This is this is what happens when you interfere with the most sacred act in American society, which is to consume. So when you when you tell people that they when but the thing is about that um, is that it would have made heads roll even beyond the individual movies. If Kevin Feige has to go in front of his whatever cabal of of people he has to report to at Marvel um, and whatever hell demon they all swear allegiance to, and he has to say that. Uh, all of face, whatever the hell they're on right now is delayed by a month because nobody's willing to pick up a camera or prop for him. His job might be on the line too, even though it's not really his fault either. And so that I think is where you saw the real power of the workers shine through that they could not only threaten us, well, threaten quote unquote, but they could actually make life difficult for people who get paid a whole lot more money than they do. But I think that's what's different about this one is because we've seen in the past how the issue of fandom and the rabidness of the fans has really interfered in making the lives of the workers not good. And that they say, well, you just need to put up with 100 hour weeks, video game maker, in order to get us our content. So the fact that that this IATSE strike seems to actually or the threat of a strike seems to have actually done anything in favor of the workers is surprising given other in, like other entertainment industry threats of strike have gone. You can see a reality in which that sort of toxic fandom is weaponized against the workers in this case and wielded and, you know, Hollywood does their thing to wield public sentiment against the workers and just crush the union into accepting whatever terms Hollywood wanted. And it should be said that there was some dissatisfaction with the terms that Hollywood got and that IATSE got in their negotiations. Uh, We should talk a bit about the specifics of what exactly they wanted. Um, One practice that workers in IATSE were upset about was um, something called Friday days, where a long Friday night's uh, shoot turns into Saturday morning um, because there's just not really, you know, any affordance of you're going to get a full weekend on this weekend. And something that the deal actually does is guarantee 54 hours of rest on weekends for crew members so that they aren't having to come back after 
you know, five 14 hour days and do the whole thing again in 36 hours time. Um, it's, you know, a start. It, you know, obviously, again, there's dissatisfaction at play here that we can get into. And and part of that is because some of the specifics, uh, the other stuff I remember, there were 10 hour, the, the deal is supposed to guarantee 10 hour turnarounds between shifts, which some workers have pointed out is already in the contracts that they've signed. So they, they said, you know, they were asking for more because 10 hour turnaround is not unknown in the industry. So, you know, it's not better than what they were already getting. And they've also, I saw this, and this is particularly interesting because this relates to 2020 Genius Award recipient Quibi. Uh, they increased the pay rate, if I understand correctly, for product that is going directly to streaming. So they kind of evened out the pay scale for that, especially if it's, I think, in the 30 to 60 minute tranche, the lower than 20 minute one, which is where Quibi was trying to make money by skimping on labor. That one is, so that one's a little bit vaguer, but my understanding is that there's language in the deal that says that it has to be brought up to match the medium range pay scale. So that that is actually a big pay raise for people working on those productions because stream only productions, especially short format ones, were being heavily taken advantage of, precisely to pay people a lot less. Thank you, Noah, for bringing up Quibi because I knew we I knew we had talked about the production length or whatever uh, before, but I couldn't remember when. Uh, to time is give weird. some of our listeners who may not be intimately familiar with Quibi the. Uh, failed short form streaming service that rose and died very quickly last spring. What we talked about when we talked about Quibi was that um, a lot of it was essentially a workaround given the existing bargaining agreement between Hollywood and uh, workers, which allowed for workers to be paid less if the project they were working on the show or whatever was under a certain length. And so Quibi said, we're going to make all our episodes 10 minutes long. We're going to uh, sell this as, you know, a product for ADD adult uh, Gen Z, when in fact, we're just trying to, um, you know, squeeze out workers by cutting up what would have been, you know, 10, 40 minute episodes into 40, 10 minute ones, or, you know, whatever the time may have been. At any rate, that sort of exception and that sort of um, loophole is now something that has been assuaged in this bargaining agreement, which is, um, uh, according to The Verge, could result in up to 30% more pay for production workers on these streaming services, which is good. But again, some workers are saying that's still not good enough. They, In an article in Deadline, um, I'll, I'll just quote from the article. One of the biggest issues was raising minimum wage for local 871 members. They include writers, assistants, and various coordinators from 16 an hour to 23.50 next year, 24.50 in 2023, and 26 dollars an hour in 2024. Um, which you know is a big increase, but also what workers had been calling for was an increase to 25 an hour starting next year. So, you know. Obviously, in all these negotiations, there are compromises. Whether these compromises are enough for 
workers to get on board with this contract is very much still up in the air. Um, the contract has not been ratified by ver- by membership of the IATSE. And it hasn't even been written, so it can't even be ratified. They have to actually put it down in language that kind of makes sense as a contract, and then that gets sent out to union locals to vote, and they vote and kind of, and this is unbelievable, they vote in an electoral college. They, it's it's each the local, only other organization in America that uses the electoral college. Yeah, they use local votes, and whatever their majority is, gets uh that that vote goes in and you just add up the yes no the yes votes and the or sorry the yes locals and the no locals and whoever wins wins not not right not not smart no. guys but whatever critical support now shortly after this deal was reached um unfortunately there was a tragic accident on the set of a movie named rust which um brought into sharp relief some of the things that IATSE workers were concerned about and some of the things that they were willing to strike over. Um, if By now, you've probably seen or read the news that uh, Alec Baldwin fatally shot a woman uh, with a gun that he did not realize was loaded with live ammunition on the set of this movie, which, in a tragic irony, is uh, about a 10-year-old kid who accidentally shoots and kills someone. And obviously, this is you know awful. Uh, the woman's name is Helena Hutchins. She was the director of photography on this movie, a cinematographer in the industry. But what workers on the set are saying is that you know this was something that could have been avoided. This was something that was deeply preventable if you know producers on the movie, Alec Baldwin included, had simply listened to workers' concerns that they had previously raised, including directly about gun safety on the set. To the point that they had walked off the set because of poor safety decisions. At the time, uh, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but at the time that the incident occurred, at, at the time that Alec Baldwin shot a person and killed them, they were using non-union crew to handle <laughs> their guns. And the non-union armorer, was apparently well then so there's there's levels to this because i guess the non-union armor wasn't always great about checking but an article that you shared with us ryan and i'm not sure which one it was discusses how the assistant director was also known for cutting safety corners on several movies and has had complaints raised against them and I don't know what other what other job does that sound familiar that you don't take safety of other people seriously multiple formal complaints get made against you and not only do you get to keep your job even when it kills someone but you know just zero consequences appear to attach to your name sounds very familiar might say it was a director involved shooting I guess <laughs> producer involved shooting producer involved shooting that's yeah there's been so many levels and if you're listening to the workers or saying anything from that uh you hear that things were not being done correctly that scabs were involved that uh didn't know what they were doing and there were consequences the consequences now appear to be that there i saw a petition earlier to make it illegal to have any kind of live weapon on a film set now which is not going to actually fix the problem that led to this happening. 
fixing the problem would be actually listening to workers and solving the worker problem, not the weapon problem, weirdly. It's possible to safely shoot a movie that features guns. It's a matter of actually prioritizing safety. And in this case, it's clear that was not the case. Um, There was an article written in Jacobin just uh, today. This is Monday um, by Alex Press. Headline, Helena Hutchins' death on the set of Rust was not a freak accident. Um, And, you know, she talks about, you know, she interviews some of the workers on set, many of whom wish to remain anonymous for obvious reasons. To quote from the article, one crew member who has worked with Halls and requested anonymity um, Halls being the associate director on this, um, said that while Halls is not a bad guy, at least one of their co-workers referred to Halls by the nickname Safety Last. Quote, he never did a safety inspection on the weapons, which he was supposed to do, and he would joke about how pointless it is to double check them, said the crew member of the production they had worked on with Halls. Um, that description accords with statements another of Halls' former co-workers made to NBC News and accounts that safety meetings on Rust two had been scrapped. And this is what happens when you deprioritize safety. The The article that I was referencing earlier, by the way, is from Yahoo. It's by Ren Graves, uh, titled Hours Before Alec Baldwin Shooting Crew Walked Off Set to Protest Safety Conditions. And it's the same. It, it confirms everything. I mean, I almost thought that these were the same quotes that you were reading, and they're only slightly different. Everyone pretty much confirms this. But it, it, this is this is what happens when you devalue the expertise of the people doing the job that needs doing. And managers and bosses love to do that. They'll tell you that they need you to do your job, and they'll tell you that you should have the right attitude and that you should, you know, have the stick to itiveness to to get through anything and whatnot. But when it comes time for you to protect yourself and your fellow workers and to point out that your expertise says that certain protocols should be followed, they suddenly just don't care about all of that anymore. It's as if you're expected to have the technical expertise, but without any of the, I guess, any of the experience that would teach you the situations to apply it in. You're allowed to have expertise to the extent that your expertise doesn't slow down production. You know, it's a matter of trying to get this movie out on time. Um, You know, a lot of reporting around this article is focused on the movie, like having a strict 21 day schedule that they were trying to adhere to. And corners get cut when you're trying to adhere to that strictest schedule. But Unfortunately, it's not unique to this one movie. It's not just Alec Baldwin that's the issue. It seems to be, you know, a culture of treating safety like a joke on Hollywood movie sets. There's a sort of galling incident that uh, press talks about in this article. I'll I'll quote from here. Adam Richwin, a former non-union gaffer for over a decade, described an incident on a low-budget indie film where he was employed that could have ended similarly to Thursday shooting had the film's key grip not stepped in at the last minute. On this movie, he says, they didn't have an armory person. Instead, the producers tasked two young production assistants with finding prop guns for a scene in which two actors placed guns in their waistband. They came back with two pistols, but they were real guns with real clips in them. It was only during rehearsal that our key grip decided to take the pistols from the actors, inspected them, and saw that there were real bullets. At that point, the grip went to the producers to explain that the guns could not be used. 
Rather than thanking the crew member, the producers viewed him as a rabble rouser, recounts Richmond. The next week, the crew returned to set only to learn that the producers and writers thought it was so hilarious we were taking this so seriously that they wrote in a scene with a character using a harpoon gun, says Richmond. What in the hell? Yeah, it. I think one of you, I honestly can't remember which one, sorry about that, um, said a very good passive voice of corners were cut. And <laughs> I think it was Ryan. Uh, it was corners get cut, which is active voice. No, he said corners were cut. Whatever. The point is, we know who cuts the corners, and it is the producer's. And it is the people in charge of putting the film together to do this. There is an act. There is an actor, ironically, uh, anyway, who puts this together and is making these decisions and doing this. And in this one particular cat case, we know the name of the producer who did this and is responsible or should be held responsible for it. He is almost certainly not going to be held responsible for this action, except maybe in a civil suit of some kind. And there's not going to be a lot of actual effects of this. And that's what's disappointing about this. Unless Ayatsi decides, no, now we're going to strike because this is getting ridiculous. And now we actually have some kind of leverage point against these films because it's not happening or, or the safety things that we need are not happening. The, the fact that we know that doing this, that, that cutting these corners results in deaths, you know, and, and uh, this incident immediately invited comparisons to 40 years ago in Twilight Zone, the movie, uh, John Landis was directing a helicopter sequence, which ended in the death of Vic Morrow and two child actors. And John Landis is still producing and directing and being a huge piece of crap, as is his son, uh, with plenty of power in Hollywood. The unfortunate truth is that we have one way of determining somebody's social worth and somebody's effectively like immunity from prosecution. Because I do love that anytime in any other country that somebody declares themselves to be immune from the justice system, we call that prima facie evidence of corruption. In the United States, as long as you're paid a certain amount of money, the the law does not apply to you, period. And we are going to see that happen with this. I really hope that Ayatza is able to, as, as ghoulish as it is, which I guess is appropriate for the month, uh, to use the, the fact that their members are under this kind of threat from people who don't care about them to maybe scrap the deal in hopes of fighting for something better. Because frankly, the fact that all of these people, all of these producers and directors and whatnot, the fact that they don't all have to just hand over their entire estates to the people who actually do the jobs that make these movies possible is more evidence of the fact that this is a country that doesn't deserve to exist anymore. Hollywood is unique in a lot of ways compared to other industries, but it's unfortunately not unique in that, you know, Executives like cutting corners and those cut corners result in huge risks for the people actually doing the work. Um, and fortunately, what we've seen elsewhere is that 
very rarely are executives held accountable when those risks lead to people dying in the workplace. Um, you know, this is not just unique to Hollywood. Um, it's something that we've seen, we've talked about in like the coal mining industry and any number of other places. Um, it's noted in the Jacobin article that Hutchins is the fourth camera crew member to be killed on set in the last 10 years in the U.S. So, you know, if that's four too many, you know, these are jobs that can be safe and should be safe. You know, it's not something that should inherently be dangerous the way that certain tests just always are going to be. And yet four people have died doing it. The risks are being taken because the people who aren't affected by those risks, you know, benefit from either the cheap thrill of taking the risk or just the production schedule of keeping things on track. Yeah. And that's, what's frustrating is ultimately you're making a movie. You're making something that we don't have to have in order to survive. Arguably though, the lack of content during the pandemic was a little much eventually, but that's why we have books people um we can read uh and there is no sense and no need to be this flippant about safety i mean this is not an essential service this is a pretty fantasy like at the end of the day that's what this is is you're just making up pretend for people that's all you're doing and the fact that we can't or don't seem to want to operate in a way that would save lives and protect people is really embarrassing. And I, not just embarrassing, it is um, outlandish. I think that's as good a place to end this segment as any. When we come back after this break, we'll talk about some of the strikes that have gone through this month and some of the strikes that are ongoing. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. I'd like to issue a correction. Last segment, I said that corners get cut is active voice. It is indeed passive. Thank you very much. Loser. Now I'm going to have to leave in that whole grammar argument. (laughs) Um, Lou is also here. Hey, guys. (laughs) That's got to be a record for derailment of a segment right there. Don't let our, you know, cheerful mood fool you. This is a... An episode about, unfortunately, some pretty upsetting news. Uh, there are strikes in various industries. We spent the first segment talking about one that did not happen in Hollywood and film production. But few strikes have gone through this month. Um, notably, one of them that we're going to lead off this segment with is Kellogg's, which follows in the footsteps of Frito-Lay and Nabisco in recent months. Um, those contracts all seem to end sort of sequentially, which um, has meant a sequence of strikes in recent months for the union representing all three of those companies' uh, workers. And the story at Kellogg's is 
very familiar if you remember our discussions of the Nabisco strike and the Frito-Lay strike. Just incredible hour-long shifts that are being required of these workers. I think for the Frito-Lay workers, it's seven days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day is what's cited in a Jacobin article written by Alex Press, who is on this labor beat. You know, again, do the math. That's 84-hour weeks at minimum. It's absurd that that sort of labor would be required to produce whichever cereals it is that Kellogg's produces. I I always get them confused with Post and General Mills. I mean, they're all selling the same kind of garbage. Yeah. Just with a different color on the box, possibly. Sometimes not even then. But I do believe the famous one would be Frosted Flakes or Frosted Mini Wheats. Corn Flakes? Frosted something. I don't know. I'm in Ryan's situation where I don't really care. Why are we arguing about this? (laughs) So that people, listeners, know which cereals not to buy, potentially. Uh, Oh, yeah, about that. So it was interesting to see in response to a strike. Because this, I think, out of all the ones that we've talked about, this is probably the bleakest one. Uh, or out of all the ones we're going to talk about, but I guess if you include Frito-Lay and Nabisco and so on, um, I guess chips and cookies are one thing, but once you threaten the nation's starchy breakfasts, suddenly they pull out all the stops because Kellogg's has responded by uh, cutting health insurance for the employees on strike, um, which is um, honestly, when you've got people who are going to be waiting on surgeries and going to have ongoing health conditions, because you will, these are working class people, this is a war crime, is what this is. If you did this to prisoners of war, it would be against the Geneva Conventions. The fact that you can get away with doing it to your own employees because they had the audacity to ask for better paying conditions is crazy. Um, but it was interesting to see, there was a lot of discussion about whether there should be a boycott of Kellogg's. And I don't want to get into the online side of things, but there was a lot of discussion as to whether the union wanted one. And what's notable about the articles that we're seeing here is that every time they talk to a union member, they do say it's perfectly fine if you don't want to buy Kellogg's. Right. Boycotting is just a basic show of solidarity with the workers in question saying, you know, as long as they're on strike, I'm not going to buy products from the company that makes money off of their labor. I'm not going to give my money to the company that they've said, we're not going to work for you until we get a better deal. Um, Lately in our online digital age, there's more, um, you get arguments about whether that should be a useful practice. And we, we really don't have to get into those arguments. Boycotting is fine in general even if the union in question isn't formally requesting one, um, you know, feel free not to buy frosted flakes. You don't need them. They're you know, too much sugar. It is a lot of sugar. We all like sweet things, but you know, there's other kinds of cereal you could get. And and that's, that's the thing is, you know, this, this is a food product, but it's in the same category as Nabisco and, and Frito-Lay in that it's, something that you are not fundamentally required to have in order to live. Uh, You have options for the vast majority of us. And the fact that there's been a different kind of response to this is a weird circumstance of, I think, just online and 
a good reminder to us all that online is not real life. And this is true. What, mm -hmm. what do the youths say now? Touch grass. Go on. Do that, folks. But like more fundamentally, this strike has been going on for quite some time. And, and Kellogg has gotten to the point now where they're they're cutting health insurance. And because of pandemic uh, extensions that were, what was it, shortened, curtailed, not extended, whatever, back in and over the summer and in September, um, COBRA is no longer an option for a lot of these workers. So they're just going to be left out to dry. And that's not good. And that's why these kinds of movements are uh, risky, but very important because the corporations that that people are striking against fundamentally have a lot of power over their workers. And this is a good reminder of that. And it doesn't in any way undercut the importance of what, what these striking workers are doing. Um, but it is concerning and um, alarming that they're doing that or this is being done. And there are a lot of industries that could point to a loss of revenue owing to the pandemic. The sugary cereal business is not one of them. Uh, the Jacobin article notes that Kellogg reported a $380 million in net income for the most recent quarter this year. Sales are up 2%. Industry-wide, cereal sales are up 9%. They have the money to offer these workers. They have the they can afford not working them eighty four hours a week. They choose not to because that's what bosses do. They will squeeze every ounce of workers that they can. While also, by the way, laying them off. One of the plants that is on strike recently had a loss of two hundred and twelve jobs. So you've got not only are they treating the workers that they do have worse to the point that they go on strike, which is a dangerous thing to do in this day and age, because there is basically no union density in the, the United States labor force anymore. But they're also doing this while moving production to other countries and lowering the quality and increasing the price of their goods. So all of this, this is like a four-pronged way of getting more money in very few people's pockets at the expense of their employees, customers, and I mean, who knows what, who else? When you talk about 200 people getting laid off, you know, I mean, simple math would tell you that if those 200 people were still working and the other people have been laid off by Kellogg's, presumably, uh, you know, they wouldn't have to work those still on the job the hours that they do, though. Maybe they would anyways. They probably would anyways is, is the sad truth. Is you know, so many cases we've seen in recent months where these uh, so-called worker shortages are either manufactured by a lack of hiring or layoffs or, you know, short, purposeful short staffing. And then that gets turned into a reason why the workers who are on the job get worked to the bone and just ridiculous shifts and ridiculous conditions. It's unfortunately, a vicious cycle. And we should also mention, by the way, that the, the thing that finally touched the strike off is that Kellogg's tried to introduce a two-tiered system, which is familiar throughout the tech sector and a number of other industries. But basically, they... And if you're, like, for example, if you're in the New York State Teachers Union, your retirement and a number of your other benefits are in a similar system. But basically, they tried to create this new transitional class of employee that would have 
worse wages, worse benefits. And under the old system, I guess it was possible for transitional employees to eventually top out and become whatever quote unquote full employees were. But I guess under this new system, that wouldn't be possible, or it would at the very least be much harder. And one of the union officials who's interviewed in the article, I think it's the vice president of the BCTGM local that authorized the strike, mentions, uh, and, and this is like a remarkably, uh, for, for Americans talking about labor issues, this is a remarkably long-sighted view to take, that if these new workers come on the job, why would they trust a union that sold them out before they were even hired? And I can say from you know, I'm non-union, but I've participated in negotiations and so on. And I can tell you that one of the things that we try to think about every time that we negotiate, because we really don't have any leg to stand on, we are completely exposed to what our employer wants to do, is how are people who get hired after us going to think of us if we grandfather ourselves in, basically? What is the next employee along the line going to think about what we did? Yeah, we've seen the the tiered system, I think, a couple of years ago when there was a UAW strike at um, some kind of automotive thing. That, that was the same situation where the the tiered workers were getting so much, the, the lower tier was getting a so much worse deal out of it. And part of the Kellogg thing is I think they were going to go from a maximum of 30% of the workforce being at the second tier to expanding that and, and making them bigger, um, which would hurt both ends. Like you're, you're sure you're going to get more people in at a lower tier, uh, which is going to save them money, but that's also going to undercut the power that the full workers or whatever have uh, for negotiating. And that's just a terrible system that unnecessarily pits one worker against the other. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, I know that in a lot of cases, unions have to accept these kind of deals in order to get anything out of corporations. And these people are making money off of you, but it's it's a bad deal. And anything that, that has that kind of aura or that kind of uh, tiered system to it um, should be suspect. Like I'm, my job is gonna be changing pretty rapidly in the next couple months. Um, and it, it seems like that's kind of what they're going towards is there's a very huge cutoff in, in benefits and I'm wary of it because it, it doesn't mean good things. Right. This sort of two-tier system is all too common a tactic from industries looking to um, weaken labor power in the long run. And unfortunately, some more short-sighted unions have agreed to the system that has resulted in, you know, it's one of many reasons for the long-term decline of union power in this country is the acceptance of these two-tier systems that make it harder to maintain worker solidarity within a company when you have people quite literally being treated differently. You mentioned UAW and their strike a few years ago now, uh, Lou. UAW workers are on strike again. In at John Deere plants across the Midwest, um, about 10,000 UAW members are on strike now, uh, protesting against, you know, conditions that you can imagine. You know, these are people making heavy farm equipment, tractors, etc. You know, it's industrial labor 
you know, that you probably have already a good vision of in your mind. It's them green tractors. You probably had a toy one when you were a child. Them green tractors that now you have to jailbreak. If I remember yes. correctly, they, they have also become tech black boxes, which is very funny given the general American view of how farming is like the only uh, the only real job anymore. It's Or sorry, farming and mining. Those are the two real jobs. Everything yeah, else no, is, is arguable. They're teched all the heck, too. Uh, anyways, yeah. But that's beside the point. Workers are on strike for the same things that basically we've been talking about this whole time. Number one, that their wage increase was, like, insulting, I think is the best way to put it. And they also, especially during the pandemic, have been forced to work longer hours making more for employers who are paying them less while taking in more money. So you've got a massive, I think somebody said with the profits that John Deere made, which they ended up spending on repurchasing shares, which is a thing that companies weren't really able to do until like 30 or 40 years ago. Um, not, not at least in the way that they're doing it now. Uh, they could have given every single John Deere worker $142,000. Which is a lot of money. Just as a reminder to folks, it's a lot of money. Um, you know, the, the one bummer part about the Kellogg strike is it's 1,400 workers total that are striking. Um, the John Deere strike is like, what, 10,000? Uh, it's a lot of people. And these folks are very skilled workers. I mean, all work is skilled work. Um, but these these guys handle heavy machinery and they're making equipment that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions for some of it. And these are the folks that they're being replaced with accountants and other folk who don't do this for a regular job. Uh, the HR specialist is now operating a forklift, which is kind of funny. Um, Except when they crash into things, it's a little less funny, but only a little less funny. It's pretty. We did spend a whole segment talking about how issues of workplace safety are not to be taken lightly. So, right, yeah, okay, fair. It's not. It's not funny if somebody gets hurt, but crashing your million-dollar tractor because the accountant doesn't actually know how to run a forklift is pretty funny. That part's pretty funny. I, I did think the New Republic article that covers this in some detail, that it was it was taking some nice pot shots at white collar workers for sort of getting to sit around uh, and Zoom for a year and a half, and you know now they have to do real work, which is a is an important contrast. I mean, there there really was a class of workers that basically got to just not go in the office and do their thing from home and be in relative safety, and then there were the rest of us. And John Deere workers are correctly pointing out that they were in the latter category and people shouted out their heroism and how essential they were. And then they got paid like they weren't. And they are demanding restitution for that. And we should say, by the way, have we talked about what John Deere tried to do in order to strike break or what it is trying to do? Um, I believe Lou made reference to this, which is that they... Uh you know, had white collar workers doing the work of 
blue collar workers as in an attempt to replace that production, which went disastrously. Um, but one thing that should be noted is that John Deere, for all its faults, eventually opted against cutting its workers' health care benefits during this strike. They had to be pressured into this after publicly threatening to do so, but at least they are not quite as bad as Kellogg's in that regard, and that they did not follow through on this cruel, vindictive threat against the workers who are rightfully upset with them. John Deere has also started in two different cities, I can't remember which ones, uh, has injunctions against the strikes and picket lines, um, which have been seen as pretty ridiculous and unnecessary, given the fact that John Deere wasn't, in one particular case, uh, the judge said that they couldn't have the fire barrels and chairs, which was not something that John Deere even said was a problem for them. The judge was just like, hey, don't have these anymore. Um, so John Deere definitely has a lot more power in this situation once again than the workers. And these these BS injunctions are just one more step that they've taken in order to, to decrease the visibility of these strikes. They did uh, in, in that, so two things about that. One, the judge who issued that, her last name is uh, Grieve, G-R-E-V-E, which is French for strike. You can't make this up. And well, two, a version of this, um, the NFL got a similar version of, of this injunction in, if I remember correctly, for the Eagles games during the 1980-whatever strike, I think it was 87. 1980. Could have been 87 or 83, either one. It was the later one. I know that because this was the one during which they definitely used like tons of scabs, notably Shug Knight. Interesting. But anyway, so they they had a very similar injunction where they could only put certain numbers and the NFLPA was backed by the Teamsters. So something like 40 times the number of people who were allowed by the injunction showed up anyway, as did an armored truck called the Scab Breaker or Scab Buster or something. So it, you know, that, that tells you something about where the strength of the labor movement was, even in the eighties, while Reagan and all of his buddies were busy dismantling everything, um, that gave workers any power. Even then they were kind of willing to take to, you know, scrap, but now you can't because eventually John Deere will get the police in with their military grade weapons and they'll just mow you down. And so, and and everyone knows that that will happen because we are more aware than ever of what the job of every institution is in this country, and it is to protect the property and moneyed. And John Deere definitely counts as that, and its shareholders and executives do. And it's white and blue collar workers, not so much, but they're nice enough to their white collar workers that they didn't that they didn't all think of walking off the job when they were told, well, now you're going to operate heavy machinery with no training. There's a, um, in this, in these times article by Colleen Boyle, um, that stuck out to me. She's quoting a worker at Iowa's Davenport works who requested an anonymity, uh, you know, striking member of the UAW quote, when you factor in the pandemic, being deemed essential workers, and in our case, having a company turning a record profit, the CEO giving himself a 160% raise, and giving 17% dividend raises, we kind of feel like we're left to kick rocks, is what the worker said. And 
all of that very hard to argue with when laid out so plainly. You know, these are workers who have not seen the sorts of raises that their CEO treated himself and uh, shareholders to. And And they're the ones doing the work. Yeah. And it's given the amount of money involved here, it really would not break John Deere in any significant way to increase wages and increase the conditions or improving conditions for these workers. As Noah said before, the profits that they've made in the past few years, uh, they could easily pay every single factory worker over $100,000 each in order to do that. Most of these profits are going to pay dividend and shareholders or dividends for shareholders. This is, it's so blatantly obvious that capital exists just to pay itself in this situation um, that it's very surprising that they continue to think that they can get away with John Deere, specifically in this case, um, thinks that they can fight these workers with their accountants and HR departments. Um, There was, I cannot remember, I'm sorry, guys, uh, which article it was, was talking about how the one white collar worker said that there was no way that the next production cycle for John Deere was going to be able to get off the ground, given the fact that welders needed to be involved and, and all these other extremely skilled jobs that you kind of have to go to a trade school in order to learn how to do properly. Um, An emergency training session is not going to teach you how to weld together a machine in order to make it an acceptable product to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on. And also Uh, who's going to train you? Yeah. I mean, like, what did they do? Did they just go to YouTube and have, yeah, (laughs) <laughs> go to YouTube and be like, hey, this is how we're going to weld this uh, crane together. Uh, take some notes, folks, and that's what you're going to do next week. Like, Is that what they did? Was that the training that they had? Um, it's absurd that they think that this is, an ex- this is something that they can actually do, that they could replace 10,000 workers with a bunch of scabs. Like, it's very bizarre that John Deere is continuing to push back as hard as they are on this um like in comparison to what they have to lose the injunctions seem weak even though they're they're pretty stiff injunctions like four people on a picket line that's it um yeah it's the the level to which it's become it's becoming obvious or rather the level to which capital no longer pretends that the game isn't rigged is wild at this point like they just openly say we are going to cheat at this we are going to treat the law as though it is our personal plaything. we have no regard for democracy or human rights of anybody on the other side it, it's i mean they they've ripped the mask off and they think that they can do that and maybe they're right because they've made sure that the people that they're thugs have all the weapons necessary to make that violent threat a reality. And, you know, John Deere probably, executives were hoping that, and I mean, I'm sure they were hoping that one of these accountants or whatever was going to get their body just crushed against a wall. And then they could put photos of that everywhere and say, this is what, you know, striking got. This is a victim. They're going to start the Victims of Labor Unionization Memorial. You know, that that's what they really wanted to see. And I I mean, if I'm, you know, it, it's, they know that 
these tactics work for them in a way that they will never work for the union. Because, and I, I know I've said this before on this show, Americans hate nothing more than the collective and the idea of working together to achieve good things. We're culturally told to hate that. And when a union says, we have people die, like Ayatza should be saying right now, and I think is saying right now, we have people die because you don't listen to us. When they say we have we your your products, the things that you if you have a tractor, if you have this breakfast cereal, these are made with our blood, sweat, and tears. We don't want to care about that because we just want to have the product. We just want to have the content. But the moment John Deere says, Look, look what these a-holes striking got you. They did this and put a picture of somebody's, you know, absolutely just ruined body on there. A bunch of people are going to have a visceral reaction and that's it. They're gone. That support melts away. And suddenly it, 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 the nuance is suddenly the order of the day. And so far it hasn't happened, which I guess we can all count our blessings for. One thing that has happened is uh, as part of the Kellogg strike, there have been workers reporting that buses carrying in other Kellogg's workers who are not on strike into you know the plants have... Um, driven dangerously close to the picket line in ways that, you know, pose a risk to the workers striking. Um, you know, this is another of those classic uh, union busting tactics from history that is all too real here in 2021. Um, this happened in Omaha, Nebraska, but you can rest assured that, you know, it's happening you know, it is not the first time we've seen these sorts of attacks on picket lines. Um, there have been attacks reported at the Warrior Met strike in Alabama, which we discussed months ago and is still ongoing at a coal mine there. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they turn to force to get what they want, these companies. They have the force. They have the muscle. They have the buses. They're going to use them. I mean, in the end, the one thing that keeps me going is the fact that I think things are changing and I, I think people are realizing that if, if nothing else, even online with the, the silly memes of people quitting their jobs via text when they're asked to come in on their day off, uh, like things, things are different now than they were a year ago. We understand the power that we have. And I think not just us here at the punching out collective, uh, but across the country, people have a better understanding of what we can actually achieve if we work together. And that's good. And we just need to keep going. I think there was, I, I don't remember where it was. It wasn't in any of the articles we read for this. But there was somebody who said on one of these picket lines that, you know, it, it's, it's a lot easier to strike when you realize that your boss wants to kill you. And honestly, that should be the line from every worker. Because that is exactly how they behaved. I don't care if they actually wanted to. They acted like it. Every person who got put in danger of being sick, of dying, of hospitalization, of losing family members, their boss, the people in charge of them, the people who are supposed to be responsible for them, acted as though they wanted them dead. We have to start from that point of view, because that is more than anything. That's, I mean, I work with a lot of people who are, you know, would never consider themselves quote unquote union thugs. 
But the fact that they felt, just like I did, that our bosses did not care whether, literally did not care whether we died on the job. And we don't work in a factory. We don't work in a place where you get your hand mangled or, you know, lose limbs. The fact that was the biggest source of solidarity I've seen in 11 years. I think it matters. I think it matters knowing that we're all in that boat. Not just the same boat, but that bad a boat. That sort of sense that actually my boss doesn't care about me is one reason I think we've seen this worker shortage shuts, you know, to the extent that it's not just overblown and inflated by bosses refusing to hire. It's workers realizing that they were getting a raw deal before. It's workers realizing that, you know, they deserve better than what they were doing before the pandemic. They deserve better than what they were doing during the pandemic in many cases, um, when they were going into work, despite the risk of a deadly virus going around, despite, you know, this being pre-vaccine, pre-mask in many cases. It, um, you know, the way in which capitalism got back to normal was alarming for a lot of people for whom they recognized that actually all of this was very abnormal. This is not how it's supposed to be. And it shook things up in a way that we haven't seen in decades, probably. I think that's where we're going to end this week's show. You can stay tuned if you're listening to this on Wayo for Born in the Belly, airing at 1. For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out, and remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.